Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, you are our creator. We are your creation. You are infinite, eternal, unchanging. You possess all wisdom and power, holiness, justice, and goodness. You are true. And all you are and all that you do arises from your truth, your perfect being. We confess our constant attempts to validate ourselves. We desperately run around and busy ourselves with daily toil to justify our value and worth to those around us. Lord, we confess our constant striving is always about our own wants, our own kingdoms, even our own glory. Lord Jesus, I pray, grant us your spirit this morning that we might hear the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Oh, that we might see the extent of all vanity under the sun and turn to you with fear and in worship to gaze at our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. That we may obey his commandments with great joy and hope, knowing that these are for our good and that you are indeed our treasure in heaven. Apart from your spirit, our hearts will despair this morning, Lord. Cause the truth of this book to expose our true treasures, our sincere joys, our our heart's greatest glories, and cause us to see by faith that none of these are worthy in comparison to Christ, who is our comfort, our soul's delight, our all in all. Triumph, I pray, Lord, over our hearts this morning. The despair and the weariness is overwhelming. Accomplish these things this morning for your namesake in the midst of us that we may leave here convinced that you are indeed our greatest good. We ask this in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, the past few years have been more difficult for many of us than any of the previous years of our lives. We had a view of our world and our place in it. Our aims and our ambitions were clearly fixed on our radars. And for many of us, most of those have been wiped away. The last couple of years have taught us that what we thought life was about may not be about those things. That which seems so secure and tangible and planned out and executed, those things have become something of what we call a mist, a vapor. What happens around us, to us, in our days now, rarely brings clarity, but instead more of this mist. Interesting characteristic about a mist or a vapor is you can't see through it. You can't understand what's on the other side of it. It, it distorts what's in front of you. You think it's really there until you try to grasp it, or in fact you walk through it, and you realize it really has no substance at all. For many of us, we were placed in very, very difficult times over the last couple of years. And we began to realize that many things that we thought were secure and stable and sure and unmovable were not. They were a mist. They were simply a vapor. Give me some time this morning as we approach this book. The book of Ecclesiastes brings us back to a reality out of a a world that we live in full of spin and hype, from everybody around us that's pushing their ideas and their agendas, the book of Ecclesiastes is cold water thrown on us. And as we read through this book, as you read through this book, you will, like when cold water is thrown on you, you will gasp, what in the world does this say? It forces us to live in a world that is real and not the world that we want. When the preacher here in Ecclesiastes tells us, and you'll see it here, about the world, he doesn't seem to care much about what we think or how we feel about this situation. 
the preacher here in the book of Ecclesiastes isn't polling his approval number so that he can twist his message to make it something that's more appealing to us. No, he really could care less about our faults wanting for all of these securities. Now, everyone around us today has a commentary on how we're to move forward. They're beginning even now to talk about what post-virus is going to look like. How our, worlds are going to, how our lives are going to come back to normal and we're going to start doing the things that we always love to do. We're going to get back to the things that we always loved. But here what I want you to see, and as we work through this passage, is that each time we look at this word, it is stable and true and sure. This is not some person who's going to say something now and it's going to change down the road. And yet when we begin listening to the voices that are around us, it seems that every time we turn around, there's a different path that we're to take, a different way to move forward, a different uh, way that we're to fix things, a different joy that we're to pursue. All kinds of hopes and ambitions. They're changing in every way. In the midst of this roaring and tossing sea of the culture, we have advice here this morning in the book of Ecclesiastes and throughout these next several months as we go. We have advice not from some pundit, but from an old sage that spoke these words hundreds of years ago, and they're still true. This is why we need to listen to him this morning. We need to cast aside all the things that are foolish, mist-like, vapor-like advice. And we need to listen this morning to this preacher. This preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. His words for us have stood the test of time. They're solid and they're sure. And oh, how desperately we need them today. His wisdom is for every age. And his wisdom is for us this morning. Now, as we turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, we need to realize that we're not only turning from a more familiar New Testament, and even as we've been in the Gospel of Mark that's been very comfortable for us for many, many years and months, we're turning now to a less-known Old Testament, a book that has all kinds of interesting twists and turns, things that we're not as familiar with. But more than that, we're turning to a particular book in the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes. And as we turn to this book, we're turning to a book that's among a category of books called the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is broken down into large categories. The first Five books of our Bible are called the Law, sometimes called the Torah. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. The next section of books that we have in our Old Testament is called the Historical Writings. This is from the book of Joshua through the book of Esther. And then after that, we have what we call the Wisdom Literature. This is Job and Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon. And in this group is this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, Wisdom Literature. Now, These these books have watered the souls of God's people for many, many years. Ecclesiastes is unique even among the wisdom literature. And of course, the latter part of our Old Testament, to finish out the categories, the latter part of our Old Testament is the prophets. Excuse me. Here in the book of Ecclesiastes, we find a uniqueness. A uniqueness even among the other wisdom literature. One commentator mentioned it this way, and I thought it was helpful. He said, the book of Proverbs gives us the rules for life, states the rules, and gives us clarity on how we are to live our lives. However, the book of Ecclesiastes gives us the exceptions to the rules. And we all remember when we were in elementary school. If you were like me, when I finally felt like I mastered the rules, I comes before E, life was great. Give me the rules. Set out the rules, allow me to grasp them, give me a couple of weeks because I'm one of the slower ones in the class. But after that couple of weeks, I've got those rules and everything's great. Life will go without a hitch. School is easy. And then that that maniacal uh, teacher comes in two or three weeks later and says, Ah, but there are exceptions to the rules. Ah, life is horrible again. None of us, rule following, order loving, People-pleasing persons in this room love exceptions to the rules. Because now every time we look at a rule, we wonder, is this an exception or is this a rule? 
You see, brothers and sisters, Ecclesiastes helps us understand that it's not just simply a list of rules that we can check off and then we can live the good life. Ecclesiastes tells us this, life is messy. And we know that's true. We don't prefer messy, but that's what we're in. And when we begin talking about order and and, and rule following and everybody making the right and perfect choices and a path that's being uh, trekked and and run down very perfectly. We can talk about maybe your family, but you're not going to be able to talk about my family. Even though we all have and have attempted to be rule followers to the letter, we realize that we live in a world that's full of exceptions. They come at us quite frequently, and they make our lives messy, and we wish they weren't there. The great novelist, Herman Melville, best known for his book, Moby Dick, speaks of this disturbing and difficult Ecclesiastes that he reads. He says it this way, That mortal man who hath more of joy than sorrow in him, that mortal man cannot be true. So the mortal man that has more joy in him than sorrow can't be a true man. He goes on and says, Not true, or he's undeveloped. And then Melville goes on and says this, With books the same, the truest of all men was the man of sorrows, and the truest of all books is Solomon's Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, he says, he goes on, he says, Ecclesiastes is the fine hammered steel of woe. And he said, not only is all all things vanity, but all things are vanity. Herman Melville wasn't the only one that thought Ecclesiastes was difficult. C.S. Lewis, many of us have read some of his books. He wrote a book near the end of his life after the death of his dearly beloved wife entitled A Grief Observed. When he wrote that book, he actually did not put his name on it. Um, In fact, in the book, he never even put his name or his wife's name inside of the book as he's talking about going through this grief after his wife died. Now, we, many of us, have read the fantastic stories of the Chronicles of Narnia that whisked us away in in a wonderful world through a wardrobe, right? Many of us may have read Mere Christianity or The Weight of Glory and were amazed at how clear and persuasive C.S. Lewis was as he wrote about his faith. But it doesn't seem like a grief observed should fit on the bookshelf alongside of those other books. A man who was able to take us to another world. A man who was able to clearly communicate a faith that he had had grasped and dealt with. This same man was overwhelmed with grief. Dealing with it, with with the reality and the rawness of all of life. It made many feel very uneasy. Listen to Lewis as he describes this sorrow. One line out of this book. He says, talk to me about the truth of religion, and I will listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion, and I'll listen submissively. But don't talk, don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion, or I shall suspect that you don't really understand. You see, Lewis understood that walking as a Christian in this life doesn't sometimes make it easier. But it still was very, very hard. Now, some didn't think Lewis actually wrote that even after he put his name on it. Some don't think God wrote Ecclesiastes. The same God who wrote the book of Psalms. The same God who writes the Proverbs. The same God who wrote the Gospel of Mark. The same God who penned the book of Genesis. Can the same God be the one that writes to us here in the book of Ecclesiastes? He can but he may not be the God that you thought you knew. This morning, we're going to start through the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to begin this study, and we're going to only do an overview today, verses 1 and 3, but then jump in next week and really get get working through the text. The best way, I think, for us to be able to work through this and get some bearings, some kind of understanding of the book as a whole, is for us to uh, answer a few questions that I have of the book. And these four questions are the four points for our sermon this morning. Some are going to be longer, others are going to be much shorter. And so 
uh, hang in there with me. Here are the four questions, which are the four points for the sermon this morning. The first question is this. Who wrote Ecclesiastes? The second point is this. How is Ecclesiastes structured? Point number three. What are the main themes? What are the main themes? Excuse me. And then point number four. Why study Ecclesiastes? Who wrote Ecclesiastes? How is Ecclesiastes structured? What are the main themes of Ecclesiastes? And then why study Ecclesiastes? All is vanity. Vanity of vanities. And so we're called to fear God and to keep his commandments. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes points us to. So let's look first at the first question. Who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? Who wrote Ecclesiastes? Well, verse 1 gives us clear evidence of exactly who wrote Ecclesiastes. Look there in verse 1. It says, the words of the preacher. Clearly, the words of the preacher who is the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. So we see here that the one who's speaking to us this morning is a preacher. The author of this book is given to us. And we see here that he is what the Hebrew word that so many people try to figure out exactly what it is, is kohelet. And this Hebrew word is a Hebrew word. Some translations translate it teacher, but the idea here is that he's one who is, is, is connected to the word uh, to mean to assemble. So what we have here, what we recognize is something of an author. We, that this, this word, this title, preacher, tells us something of the author, but it also tells us something of the title or the audience of, uh, of those who are going to be spoken to. What we have here is not merely a street preacher, one who might head out into the streets and, and call upon his own authority to tell people what God has said. Nor do we have here one who is simply teaching an individual with very specific and precise application to individuals one-on-one. What we have here is a preacher who is gathering God's people to instruct them in a broad, wise way. But he doesn't just give us any wisdom. As preachers should not give just any wisdom or even his own wisdom. But instead, what we have here is this teacher. He isn't simply teaching us from a textbook. No, he's teaching us from God. So we have sometimes where a teacher may teach us some facts that she finds or she gives to us from a textbook. Or a carpenter may teach us from experience here. This preacher is teaching us God's words. He's given to us what we need to know as we live wisely in this very, very difficult world that the Lord has placed us in. And he's called the assembly together to instruct them in this wisdom. So the one who speaks is a preacher. Secondly, I want you to understand under this who wrote Ecclesiastes. The one who speaks is a preacher who's a son. You see this here. The words of the preacher, the son of David. This speaks of, this speaks of his duty here. Excuse me, that spoke of his duty, the idea of his preacher. This speaks of his intimacy. I'm sorry. This speaks of his intimacy. He's speaking to, he's preaching to those whom he, uh, as a son here. Verse 1 describes him as the son of David. Here we have him being related to the great king of the Old Testament. However, the point is not so much the duty that he has, but instead the authority that he has, or, or nor the authority that he has, but instead the idea of his intimacy as one who is speaking to this young man. The preacher he is the very son of the great David. And David had the responsibility of handing down wisdom, God's wisdom and experience, to his son Solomon. In other words, this preacher is speaking to us as an old father, as one who has spoken to him, as a pastor, as a disciple maker. He has seen a few things. He's experienced life. This preacher has walked, watched many sons come up and many sunsets. And his desire is to instruct us as he has experienced these things. And the aim is to hand down mature, timely wisdom from this preacher that we might receive. Wisdom that he received from his father. So it's intimate. But we see also this one who is speaking is not just simply a preacher or a preacher's son, but also a preacher king. He says he's the king of Jerusalem. Do you see that there in verse 1? Though the author of Ecclesiastes is never actually named. Nowhere in the book of Ecclesiastes is the name of the author given. Only this title of preacher. We're going to assume that the author is Solomon. Now, many people like to uh, debate that and consider that, especially over the last hundred years. 
But as we look at the book of, of Ecclesiastes, we see a lot of things that are happening. One, we see that this man, this one who is the king, has a unique position as king. Solomon fits that role. But also we find that this one who is the king also is one who is uniquely wise. Notice with me in verse 16 of chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes. Look with me. 116. Chapter 1, verse 16. I said in my heart, I have, acqu- I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Not only do we see this one who's called the preacher, who's a king, but he also has this unique wisdom. But thirdly and finally, he has access to lavish resources. Lavish resources. Unparalleled really to many, almost any of the other kings that followed after David. We know in chapter 2, if you will, look over to chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9 of Ecclesiastes. It says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. This great and unique wisdom. And then it goes on and it says in verse 10, And whatever my eyes desired, I did. I did not keep it from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And if you read chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, you realize he indeed did that. He built gardens, had fantastic uh, stuff, had all kinds of things that he brought his way. He was able to have access to any and everything. And so we we know that the Lord's favor was shown to Solomon in a unique way. In 1 Kings chapter 3, it says in 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 7, Solomon is speaking, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. This is, David, this is Solomon speaking in 1 Kings 3, verse 7. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go in <coughs> or come out. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted or for, for multitude. And then Solomon goes on and asks the Lord this. Listen in 1 Kings chapter 3. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, this is what God says to Solomon, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall rise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare to you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father walked, then I will lengthen your days. The Lord uniquely blessed Solomon, both in way of his wisdom, but also in way of the prestige of his kingship and his reign. So we see here that this one who is the son of David, the king of Jerusalem, this one who's titled preacher, who's assembled God's people for the purpose of teaching them God's words and God's wisdom, this one is Solomon. Finally, I want to ask, as we consider lastly this understanding of the one who is, who is speaking here, the one who wrote Ecclesiastes, is that this one is not just simply the preacher's son or the preacher king. But finally, I want you to understand that this one who's speaking is the preacher Messiah. We're not just listening to the words of an old-fashioned preacher who's a son and a king hundred years ago. Instead, we're looking this morning at one who is the wisest of men. We're looking this morning at one who is greater than even Solomon. This morning, we are listening to one who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus reminds us as he's confronted with the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 11, the Pharisees, as always, are wanting signs. They're wanting to be wowed by Jesus. And Jesus tells them, listen, you're not going to be wowed. I'm not going to continue to give you signs and things. But he reminds them of a day when Queen Sheba, Queen of Sheba, went to Solomon because she was not, she was not convinced that all the great things she had heard about him and all the status that had been made up about him was in fact true. When Queen of Sheba shows up before Solomon, she's stunned when she arrives. And when she leaves, she confesses that it was actually greater than she was even told about. 
Jesus brings this very narrative to the, the Pharisees. And he says, listen, you may want signs and wonders, but listen, 11, Luke chapter 11, verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear of the wisdom of Solomon. And listen to the last part of 11, Luke eleven thirty one, And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Who is the one greater than Solomon in all of his wisdom, pomp, and wealth? Well, the one who's greater than Solomon is Jesus Christ himself. Who, according to Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, is in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, if this is the astonishing speaker we have before us this morning, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, as he's being set before us as we look at this book together, this book of Ecclesiastes, brothers and sisters, in the same way that those who assemble for this preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes listen to this wisdom from the Lord, this morning we have an urgent, an urgent duty before us. We're to listen to this preacher, this one who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is declaring to us the wisdom that comes from only himself, who is indeed the one who has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in himself. And even though we may think to ourselves, this one that's talking in the book of Ecclesiastes seems so strange. He doesn't talk like David or Isaiah or John or the Apostle Paul. Surely he indeed is one who is Jesus. And by the power of his spirit this morning and through the weeks ahead, we need to be very, very careful to listen because here before us, as you will see at the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, turn with me there. The end of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 11. Ecclesiastes 12, 11. The words of the wise are like goads. Ecclesiastes 12, 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. And listen to this last phrase. They are given by one shepherd. And that one shepherd is our shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, I have to call some of you here this morning to consider. Have you been living by your own wisdom? Have you come here this morning with assumptions of what you think your life should be? What the problems are and struggles are in your life? What things will fix the struggles that are happening there? If only these things will happen, then everything will be great. Would you this morning consider that the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to each and every one of us this morning? And for some of you this morning, you need to repent of your own assumed wisdom that you bring here this morning. You need to repent of your own desire to build your own kingdom for your own ends and to have your own way to enjoy life according to the way you want to enjoy it. You need to repent of those things and turn this morning to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd who says that in him all wisdom and knowledge is found. That we turn from our wisdom and our desire to live our lives according to our plan and to say, Lord, my spouse is yours. My children are yours. My job is yours. My things are yours. My time is yours. My possessions are yours. My life is yours. We need to confess that too many times we live by our own wisdom for our own glory to our own kingdom's sake. So who here wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? By the power of the Spirit, we're going to be listening to the very words of Jesus this morning and for the mornings coming as we look at Ecclesiastes together. Second, how is Ecclesiastes structured? How is Ecclesiastes structured? Uh, it is easy for us to get into a book and get two or three chapters in and then lose our way. Uh, as we're moving through it, it's easy to begin uh, getting lost of where we're at. The difficulty with the book of Ecclesiastes is that I have about a dozen different commentaries on Ecclesiastes. I think I have about 14 different outlines for Ecclesiastes out of those dozen books. Everybody likes to break it up different ways. And really, there's real no, there's real no uh, consistent structure as people have been laying, out it, laying it out. So this morning, I want us to understand the book of Ecclesiastes as taking a trek, a journey, if you will. And what we want to do is we want to take this trek or this journey up to the top of a mountain and then back down the other side. Now, the journey is not complete just for us to get to the top of the mountain. The journey is complete when we get to the other side. There will be the treasures that are awaiting us. 
But along the way, we've got a lot of different turns and twists as we go. And I want us to understand this rough outline as we think about this trek or this journey that we're going on as we work through the book of Ecclesiastes. If you would, take your Bible or your book of Ecclesiastes here, and I want to notice two or three different places here. First, we have the introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes in verses 1 through 3. This is really what we're looking at this morning. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? There a question is brought forward, and this is the introduction and the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. We then turn to point number two. Point one is introduction. Big number point number two as we work through the book of Ecclesiastes is life filled with vanities. And this is chapter 1, verse 4, through chapter 4, verse 16. So it's from the rest of chapter 1 all the way through the end of chapter 4. All of those chapters, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, are the theme there is life filled with vanities. Life filled with vanities. And we're going to talk about all the different ways that the preacher has sought to find meaning in life. Then we're going to get to the top of our mountain, if you will, the summit. In chapter 5, turn with me there, in chapter 5 of the book of Ecclesiastes, it's really the center and the high point of the book of Ecclesiastes. And there we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, what we're going to. When we get there to the top of that mountain, what are we called to do? We're called to fear and worship God. Notice with me, if you will, in chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Now listen to this last part. This is very important. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and fool's voice with many words. Here we see a very important principle right at the summit of our, of our journey, if you will. At the very top of the mountain, we have here, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. This understanding that we need to come to the house of God, that we need to come before him with worship and fear, acknowledging that he is in heaven and we are on earth. This is really the, the apex, the summit of the book of Ecclesiastes. So we have here the introduction, verses 1, one through 3. Then we have life filled with vanity, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Then we get to chapter 5, there at the very beginning. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 is the summit of our mountain, fear and worship God. And then we turn in verse 8 of chapter 5, in verse 8 of chapter 5, into our fourth section. That fourth section is life under the sun. Life under the sun. So introduction, life filled with vanities. Then we have the summit, which is fear and worship God. And then fourthly, life under the sun. Life under the sun is the rest of chapter 5 all the way through to chapter 12. Life under the sun goes from chapter 5 all the way through to the end of chapter 12. And then as we get to the end of chapter 12, turn with me there. At the very end of chapter 12, verse 8. The very end of chapter 12, verse 8 is the conclusion of the book. So we went up the mountain, we're at the summit where we worship and fear God, and then we come back down the mountain. As we're going up the mountain, we're going to be looking at and understanding life filled with vanities. When we get to the top of the mountain, we're going to fear and worship God, and then as we come down the other side of the mountain, we're going to talk about uh, the, the understanding of life under the sun and what that means. And then we're going to land at the bottom of the mountain On the other side, chapter 12, verse 8. Look with me, if you will. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs in great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly too, he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given given by one shepherd, my son. Beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end. And much study is the weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, the the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment. 
with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So we go from one side of the mountain where we understand all is vanity, and we go up to the summit of the mountain where we worship our God and understand that He is in heaven and we are on earth. And then we go down the other side of this mountain and we find that what is called of us to do is to fear God and to keep His commandments. Brothers and sisters, I want to commend to you this morning to keep going. To keep going. We need to understand that as we commit to this journey, to go through the book of Ecclesiastes, in the same way we commit to our lives. We have all kinds of turns and twists, things that are difficult and things that are good in our lives, and yet the Lord tells us to continue to move on. None of us have kept those things that we treasure the most, always. We won't. None of us have also lived continually and habitually in nothing but sorrow. The Lord mixes and blends our life with all of these different things. The book of Ecclesiastes shows us the very same thing. It says that when we go on this journey, there's going to be all kinds of things that are going to be happening. But keep moving forward. You see, because the reward, the reward, isn't, the reward isn't along the way, though you may see incredible vistas. Though when you get to the top of the mountain, you may want to stay there. The Lord says, keep going. Because where he has for us to go has greater reward. We must continue to read the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is what I want to help you understand about the book of Ecclesiastes uniquely, really, from many of the other books, maybe, in, the, in our Bible. And it is this. The book of Ecclesiastes needs to be read patiently. It's not something like a math problem. The book of Ecclesiastes isn't like a math problem that you can get somebody to show you how to do it, and now you can do every math problem like that. The book of, the book of Ecclesiastes, rather, is more like music. When you heard that song the first time, you thought it was pretty good. But after you've heard it a dozen times, and maybe in different experiences and different ways in your life, that song has become precious to you over the years. My encouragement to you is allow Ecclesiastes to seep into your life. As we go along the journey, keep referencing back to Ecclesiastes. Let it, let it be patient with the book and let it seep into your life in different ways. This is why. Because the treasures that the Lord has for us, the treasures that the Lord has for us, the resolve and the reward for all of our struggles, it doesn't come along the way. Not fully. It comes when we get to the other side of the mountain. So, thirdly, the third question. What are the main themes of this book? What are the main themes of this book? If Ecclesiastes, if I'm asking you to consider or think about it as a journey, then it might be good for us to have some signposts along the way that will help us better with clarity understand what's happening as we move along this journey in the book of Ecclesiastes. The signposts will, uh, if, we, if we look at them now, we'll be able to quicker be able to discern them and understand what they mean and how we're to use them and understand them along the way through, as we work through this book. So Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Look with me if you will. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The first theme is not hard to see. 36 times in this book. The most important concept that we see in this book is this idea of vanity. This term is notoriously difficult to grasp. For some reason, everybody thinks that they've got a better take on it than other people. It's amazing to me how sure everybody is who writes about this or even other guys who talk about this that say, this is definitely what it means and nobody else knows what it means. It's just really fantastic. Um, the whole point is this, is the word hevel, which is the word for vanity, is just hard for us to get our hands around. And the reason we know that is because the idea here of the word hevel is actually the understanding of a puff of air, breath, mist, vapor. But vital to this understanding isn't just the substance of that, what it is, in fact, that it's a breath, a, a mist, a vapor. The understanding here that's trying to be conveyed is this, is that these things are passing. They're temporary. They're fleeting. They have no substance. In other words, there's nothing really there. The various ways that translations, especially English translations, have tried to have tried to translate this helps us understand that this isn't a word that we can just we can just have one word for. Other translations use the word meaningless. One translation uses the word pointless. Another translation uses the word futile. I even found one that used the word absurd. All these translations help us simply understand that this concept is not one that we use today and not one that's easy for us to get our hands around. So our verse this morning states that everything in creation, everything that's in creation should be listed under the category of passing and not here very long. In other words, everything should be understood as vanity of vanities. 
says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Everything we see, everything we know is vanity. So here we find the preacher stating something that we've heard before. And that is that all things are fleeting. They're vanity of vanities. Now this phrase is one that we've heard before in the Bible. You know when we read the phrase holy of holies what that means. That the holy of holies is the most holy place of the other holy places in the tabernacle, right? We know what we mean when we say Lord of lords. That there's one Lord over many of the lords. We know what it means when we hear the word or the phrase king of kings. Here what we have is vanity of vanities. The emphasis here is on degree. In other words, all of us this morning have evaluated our lives. We've looked around in our days and we've decided, sometimes poorly and sometimes well, what are the things I need to not do today? Because that's really the challenge, right? All of us don't need to figure out, okay, here's, I need to find something to do today. Most of us are trying to figure out, what do I not need to do today? What are the things that are unimportant? What are the things that are not best for me to do? Every one of us, Every one of us had made the decision this week. Please come and talk to me afterwards if you didn't make the decision. Every one of us this week made the decision not to dust under our refrigerator. Right? Because that's just not important. There's no need for that. Right? There's so many other things that are more important. All of those things that you have evaluated as vanity, as not important, as not having any substance. Here, the preacher is saying... There's a vanity greater than all of those vanities that you have assumed. And what does he say here? He says all creation. All creation is to the highest degree of vanity of all other vanities that may be considered. In other words, everything is inconsequential. And therefore, we must remember that it does not have that the the world and the things in it does not have true substance to them. It is not worth fixing our final hope upon. Now this is pretty discouraging for us. Many here today, and I'm praying this is what the Lord will do for us as we work through the book of Ecclesiastes. Many of here today do not want to confront the very fact that your life is absolutely fixed upon having something in this world. The preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes says that's vanity. That if you are fixing your hopes and your joys, your ambitions and your aims, your desire for existence, your desire for value, if you're fixing it on anything in this world, you're fixing it upon something that is vanity of vanities. It has no substance. It should not and it does not deserve our final hope. Everything about this world and all the things that are in it are vanity above all other things. You must think that these things are vanity. Now, this is the first theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. Some of us are sitting here this morning and you're saying, well, I don't like that. That's got to mean something else. Spend some time this afternoon reading over the book of Ecclesiastes. And you know it's true. You don't want it to be true. Because if that's true, then my my ambition, my desire, my love for more of this world, if this is true, it's unthinkable. We need to confront the fact, and we need to understand, that every good thing that we take pleasure in in this world everything that we have, everything that we consider dear, you will not have it sooner or later. It is vanity. It will go away. You will not take it with you. You come into the world, as we're going to find out next week, with nothing. And you leave this world with nothing. We assume that when the Lord gives us gifts, because we love them so much and they're such a joy, that we are to keep them forever. And we're not. We never were supposed to. How then do we think about those things? The book of Ecclesiastes is going to help us. 
Theme one is the idea of vanity of vanities. Theme two is this idea that we see here in verse three. In verse three, it says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And here, I'm actually going to give you three words. It's actually a a bunch of words in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it all goes together. Here are the words, toil, gain, and striving. This idea of what do we go after? How hard do we work? Every single day of your life, you get up and you go after something. We are fervently doing something day in and day out. What is all this toiling? What is all this striving? Here's a theme or a signpost, if you will, as we work through the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to see this idea of toiling, gain, and striving over and over again. The question that the preacher asks here in verse 3 is this. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under sun? In other words, what is it that you get from all of this work, all of this effort that you put forward in your day-to-day life? Now, this question presses upon us, and we have to confess it's not a strange question. Indeed, many of us ask this very question of our lives every single day. What gain or profit will come if I give myself to this thing or that thing in any given day? We ask that question all the time. This is one of the most haunting questions of our lives. It confronts our very existence. Will all the effort and toil and striving that I have done in my life not matter? Each of us can't really move on or go anywhere until we figure out that question, until we resolve that question. The book of Ecclesiastes gives us some help. As we work through the book of Ecclesiastes, we will see the truth that is laid before us in answering this very question. The New Testament book of of James actually helps us in this way. James, in chapter 4, verse 13, the book of James in the New Testament says this, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. James chapter 4, verse 14. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And as we consider our toiling and striving, let us not forget that none of these toilings and strivings, none of this can bring us a bit closer to God, who is our maker. All of our effort and all of our intentionality, all of our discipline cannot bring us one iota closer, cannot make one hair grow, cannot cause one problem to escape our lives. Communion with God cannot happen except for Psalm 46. You hear this almost every Sunday. Psalm 46 verse 10 says, Be still. And know that I am God. The New American Standard translates it this way. Cease striving and know that I am God. Brothers and sisters, here's the great promise that we have. There will be a day when your toiling and striving will cease. And you will know him. And you will not shed a tear for what you treasure so much here on earth. When you lay your head on that pillow and you close your eyes for the last time, it will be gain. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled and strivings cease. He's my comforter. He's my all in all. Here in the love of Christ, I stand. We sing of this hope. There's a poem that I read every year on my birthday. In fact, um, I I felt I was uh, now able to preach through the book of Ecclesiastes because I turned 50 this year. And uh, for many, many years on my birthday, I read through the book of Ecclesiastes 
and then I listened to this poem. It's by John Piper, and the poem's entitled, The Calvinists. You can go and look it up if you like. And he's talking about a disciple of the Lord, the disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of that poem, it says this. See him nearing death. Listen to his breath. Through the ebbing pain, final whisper, gain. The third theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. The first is vanity of vanities. The second is toil, gain, and striving. The third theme is under the sun. This phrase, under the sun, it is frequent in the, in the uh, book of Ecclesiastes. We see it here in the last part of the question in verse 3. Verse 3 says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils? Notice, under the sun. This phrase or the concept around this phrase occurs right at 40 times in this book, mostly near the end. It is significant for us to understand. The point of this phrase is to speak of the world that we experience, the world we take in with all of our senses, the world that we see and the world that we smell, the world that we touch and the world that we hear, the world that we enjoy. All that is under the sun that humanity is able to encounter. What we will see as we work through this book is that we either take the things that are under the sun too seriously when we try to live our lives as if this is the only hope and joy that we'll ever have. We live materialistic lives thinking that the only way that I can be happy and have joy is to be able to soak up all that I can of this world, to drink deeply of everything that the world has to offer me, to take all of the pleasures that are there and to take them for myself. That's the only way I can be happy. And the reason I'm not happy right now is because I don't have enough of those pleasures of the world. That is taking the world under the sun way too seriously. Or the other danger, as we're going to find in the book of Ecclesiastes, are those who take things under the sun not seriously enough. This is where many of us may fall. And we'll find as we work through the book of Ecclesiastes that this is a very important concept, one that we need to make sure we are very faithful to. We are not enjoying the things that God has given to us under the sun enough. We do not relish a good meal. We do not linger with friends and family members or listen when the children are laughing. It's been a long time since we've savored a good cup of coffee or taken a long walk or sat and watched the leaves wave as the wind blows through them. We forget that these are joys that God has given to us and these are reflections of His glory. And they're only a taste. They're not the substance, but they're a taste of what is to come. And to the degree that our heart can soar when we look and experience the things that are under the sun, we're reminded that our Maker is very good. And He desires for us to love Him and revel in the things that we have and enjoy them, not as ends of themselves so that we grasp them and say, I will never have joy unless I can keep this. But instead know that these are only foretastes of what is to come. The preacher will call us to not just accept these things, but to revel in them as the gifts from a good, good and great creator. And he'll teach us that if the gifts are this good, how much better can the giver be? These passages in the book of Ecclesiastes will also teach us that if we're under the sun, that there must be something else. These passages in the book of Ecclesiastes will help us understand and remember the fact that the thing that our souls so much long for, that our soul's greatest desire, will never be met with the things that are under the sun, but instead with the things that are beyond the sun. Remember how the book of Ecclesiastes reaches its summit. Remember that in chapter 5? And it speaks of this astonishing an absolutely necessary truth for us to grasp. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Let your words be few. So this concept helps us set in place one of the first and most foundational truths of the Bible. And that's, that's amazing. Okay, so let me say it again. This passage helps us set in place the first and most foundational truth of our Bible. 
And it is this, the creator-creation distinction. That there's a God who is in heaven. And he's not just bigger and better and more wise and more amazing than us, but just kind of a little more than us or a lot more than us. No, he is other. He is distinct. He is, he is out there. He is holy. He is God. And we are his creation. The very first verse of our Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So everything we see and know and experience are under the sun. It is the the truth that we confess in the Apostles' Creed when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. This truth is the very basis of our faith, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Everything is under the sun. And brothers and sisters, if you give your life fervently with incredible zeal to those things that are under the sun for their own sake, you will die a very sad man. Because those things are only vanity if they're your only hope. Finally, And lastly, I want to end by simply giving you four bullet points. The last question is, why study the book of Ecclesiastes? And we're going to end pretty quickly here. We're going to land the plane fast, okay? Why study the book of Ecclesiastes? I'd like to simply give a few bullet points to stir our thoughts and to motivate our prayers as we begin this book together and as we go forward in the mornings to come. Why should we study the book of Ecclesiastes? book of Ecclesiastes, four reasons, which will be jump-off points for us in the weeks ahead. We study the book of Ecclesiastes because, first, Ecclesiastes is honest about how hard life is. Ecclesiastes is honest about how hard life is. And it does not give us an easy answer. It doesn't give us some trite way to live. It doesn't give us a list of do these five things and everything will be better for you. That life of bliss and comfort and ease that we so foolishly believe that comes to us from every social media and every TV station that we have, that idea of bliss and comfort and ease that we think that we should be living, it's a lie from Satan. Life is tough. It's because we live in a world that's been fallen and is fallen. The idea of me time is demonic. It's from Satan. There's this whole idea that raises an entire generation that thinks it's all about me and my time and what do people think about me and don't I need time for me and my needs and my efforts? No, no. It's about laying our life down and giving ourselves for Christ and loving the people that are around us and living in this hard world, helping those that are around us see Christ in the midst of it. Keep living for your weekends for your pleasures, for your vacations, for your stuff, for your things, your heart will continue to be empty. I don't have to prove that. Ecclesiastes already has. Point number one, honest. Ecclesiastes is honest about how hard life is, and it doesn't give us easy answers. It tells us that bliss and comfort is, is worthless. Number two, our experiences, we, we need to study Ecclesiastes because our experiences, that is, the things that we observe under the sun, Our experiences will never satisfy our soul's true longing. Our experiences will never satisfy our soul's true longings. The book of Ecclesiastes helps us see that in incredible clarity. Our experiences, those things that are under the sun, will never satisfy our soul's true longings. Point number three. Point number three. We need to to study Ecclesiastes because life can and should be enjoyed. Life can and should be enjoyed. The awe and wonder and good that God has given to us here on earth is to be, dr- is to be, is to be drunk down deeply. And never for the, for, again, never for the purpose of having them in and of itself, but with the promise that greater things are to come. Greater things are to come. Fourthly and finally, we need to study the book of Ecclesiastes. <sighs> The fourth point is, because every part of our life, the good and the joyful things, as well as the disappointing and sorrowful things, everything in our life, all of it, is to establish and stir worship in the one true God.
every aspect of our life, both the good and joyful things, as well as the disappointing and sorrowful things, all of it is to establish and stir worship in our one true God, our almighty maker of heaven and earth. And that's what Ecclesiastes does. It turns us away from worshiping the creation and turns us to worship the one true God who is worthy of all of our worship. My prayer for this study is that we will grow to endure the sorrows better, embrace the joys with more fervency, and to await the glorious treasures that are promised to us together. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust will destroy, where thieves will break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us one day. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let us pray together.